Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this evening, an opportunity to look at your word. We thank you for each person that's here. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word. Lord, we pray for those that are not doing well health-wise in our, in our church, that you will touch them and, and heal them, that you will bring your spirit of healing upon them. And we just thank you for all that you've done in our lives. In your son's name, amen. Ezekiel chapter 9. I'm going to read the whole chapter because I think we'll make it through. It's only 11 verses. He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them to have char- that have charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lies toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one among them was clothed in linen with a rider's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood by the brazen altar. And the glory of the Lord of Israel was gone from the cherub, whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. And the Lord said unto them, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for all the abomination that be done in the midst thereof. And to the others he said in my hearing, Go ye after him through the gate and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have you pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man upon whom the mark, or is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house, and he said unto them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go ye forth. And they went forth and slew in the city. And it came to pass while they were slain that I was left, and I fell on my face and cried, all Lord God, will you destroy all the residue of Israel in the pouring out of your wrath upon Jerusalem? Then said he unto me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of blood, and the city full of perverseness. For they say, The Lord hath forsaken the earth, and the Lord sees not. And as for me, me also, my eyes shall not spare, neither will I have pity, and I will recompense their way upon their head. And behold, the man clothed with linen, which had the ink horn by his side, reported the matter, saying, I have done as you have commanded me. So we're going to look at this. So this is Ezekiel seeing a vision, at the very least a vision, if not a reality. And it's hard to determine whether it was a reality or not. But it seems to be a vision. And he says, he cried in my ears with a loud voice and the he in this case follows who's been talking for the last two chapters God so God has said in his ears with a loud voice cause them that have charge over the city to draw near even every man with his destroying weapon and behold six men came from the way of the higher gate which lies toward the north and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand and every one of them was clothed with linen and the ink and one man among them was clothed with linen and a writer's inkhorn by his side and they went in and stood by the brazen altar most people believe that this is talking about angels being coming up rather than physical men the word here is men in the hebrew it is ish but it most of the commentators that i checked into because i i was kind of leaning toward the idea that this was angels when i read this rather than 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 men coming through and doing this slaughter and most of the commentaries agree that I read that it is angels. Uh, it could literally be men, but it definitely has a picture of somebody going through and doing a great slaughter, which is not usually what you see 
men when God moves, it's usually the angels that, that uh, do this. I would never argue with somebody if they wanted to say they believe it's men. I'm not going to sit there and argue, but when I was reading this, the first thing that popped into my head that these were angels. And uh, it's because they came, six men from the way of the higher gate, which would have been, he's outside of the temp, right outside the temple for these last couple chapters, and the higher gate would be further into the temple which would indicate, again, that angels are the ones coming out from the higher parts of the temple. Um, and it says they came with destroying weapons. And this is kind of an interesting, interesting word because it talks about uh, corruption in the grave is what it usually refers to with the word that they use for de- that they're translating destroying, um, which indicates an executing of judgment and this is God calling out. And remember, we've gone through chapter 8. We talked about all the different corruption, how they put idols in the very temple. And remember, we talked about that last week. They put up the, the Astaroth next to the, to the altar, and inside, inside the holy place, they'd had the, the idols being worshipped. They'd been worshipping the sun in the very temple of God. And basically, it's showing that God's had enough. <laughs> And his fury is poured out. And again, this is a question of did it happen at the time of the destruction of Babylon? Or is it a picture of what will happen at the end times? Because we see, again, there's a great picture and similarity between this particular chapter and Revelation. When God moves and he marks, marks the... Uh, faithful followers and, and various places where he says, go forth and destroy, but don't touch those that are marked. And so we, it, there's some question on it. I tend to believe that it's talking about Revelation at the in, end of days when God's fury starts to flow completely because we don't really have seen a picture of this destruction in Jerusalem of this particular nature uh, where it seems to be God-enforced, again, during Babylon, it was destroyed, the people were carried away, but we don't see this kind of destructive nature that's being pictured here at that time. And it says that they carried a slaughter weapon in verse 2, and a slaughter weapon literally is a club, is what they're talking about, the club, and it breaks, breaks into pieces. So this is a very violent... <laughs> judgment that God is picturing. And then it says there was one that was clothed in linen with a rider's inkhorn by his side. This seems to me to picture the high priest or Jesus Christ himself that's going to be the one marking the people with the mark. Especially if we look at this as being angelic, angelic forces and, you know, not literally human. And that's the other reason why we, I kind of thought it was angels in the first place. I can picture somebody walking through Jerusalem, putting an, <laughs> putting an X all over people's heads, you know, as you walk through Jerusalem, besides the fact that there's hundreds of thousand people, you know, how can one person do, do that? So I really believe that this is an angelic. And the picture here is of a person clothed in linen, the one who wore linen in the, in the Old Testament were the priests, and this one appears to be not just a priest, but a high priest, which would make him a picture of Jesus that he's seen. So and he's got an inkwell, and they stand beside the brazen altar. Now, again, the brazen altar is, if you remember the, 
tabernacle and the temple, you have the outer wall. Outside the outer wall is the court of Gentiles. Inside there between the outer wall and the holy place is where they would go in and they would make the offerings. And the males would go in there. They, there would be tables all around there. They would slay the animals. They would skin the animals, cut them up the way they were supposed to. And the priests would take the offerings to the brazen altar where they would be burnt. And if you remember when we talked about it, brass in the scriptures usually refers to judgment. And the altar, the brazen altar where you would put your sacrifices, where the judgment was placed upon your sins because of the sacrifice. So don't remember how many people remember that when we went through the, <laughs> through the tabernacle. But in, usually brass is for judgment. And the six individuals that are seen and the high priests that we're seeing are standing next to the brass altar as they're given, getting ready to be given this command to go judge. So we see this picture of judgment falling upon the people. And again, we see all of this going on. He's got his riding horn. And verse 3 says, And the glory of God of Israel was gone up from the cherub, whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. And he called to him that was clothed in linen, which had the rider writer's inkwell horn by his side. The glory of the Lord. Uh, when we see the glory of the Lord in the scriptures, we see that it's God's glory that sits upon the mercy seat. All right? The mercy seat where the blood of the atoning sacrifice was placed once a year, where the cherubs come hold their wings over it. So we see the glory of God moving from the mercy seat and coming to the front of the doorway to the holy place to call out to the Holy One. So we are seeing a picture of God moving. And this is kind of an interesting thing when we look at it. All of these pictures that we have here. I want to go to Daniel chapter 10 real quick. And I marked it because i got a lot of scriptures I want to try to look at. Daniel 10, verse 5. And I lifted up my eyes and looked and beheld a certain man clothed in linens whose loins were girded with fine gold of Euphaz. His body also was likened to beryl, his face unto the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like the color of polished brass, and the voice of his words were like the voice of multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but fell quaking, but a great quaking fell upon them, and they fled and hid themselves. And this is when these pictured the angel that met him at the riverside with his feet on the land and on the water. And we believe that that's a picture of Jesus talking to him about the future. And in Daniel 12, we see the same picture in, in, chapter, in verse 6. <coughs> as soon as I get there. And it said unto said to the one clothed in linen which was upon the waters of the river, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed with linen which was upon the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and he swore by heaven that lives forever that it shall be a time, times, and a half. And when he had accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all those things to, to be finished. We, when we went through Daniel, we talked about this. This is a picture of Jesus that he's seeing on it. In Revelation uh, 113 it says the same thing that Jesus appears as a clothed in, in linen 
And this is one of the reasons that this is a believing that we see that this is Jesus that he's seeing. But God moves from the mercy seat. Mercy seat. We, the other name for mercy seat is the seat of propitiation. And propitiation is a great big word, but it literally just means the, that the anger has been satisfied. Okay? God has anger towards sin, and on the mercy seat, his anger is satisfied because of the blood of the atoning sacrifice. And the ultimate real sacrifice was Jesus Christ. And there are many, and myself included, that believe that when Jesus died on the cross, that he took his blood to the heaven, the mercy seat in heaven, and presented his blood to the Father for the cleansing of all sins of the world. And we see God standing off the mercy seat and coming to the, to the, off the mercy seat toward, toward the, bra, the judgment and saying, now is the time. We're going to judge. And we see this throughout the scripture that God has this point where his mercy and his grace seems to come to an end. And he says, now is the time to bring judgment. But even when he judges, he has mercy in his, in his, in his actions, just as in Noah's day. The whole world was going to be destroyed, but he took Noah and his family and saved them. During the Babylonian captivity and the Assyrian captivity for Israel, some were left behind that were worshiping God. We see in Revelation that he's going to take the, take the church out, but he's going to take the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, mark them, and say, go out and witness. So he keeps a remnant. Um, Elisha said, you know, Elijah said, you know, I'm the only one worship you. And God says, no, I've got thousands who haven't bent their knees. God always has a remnant of people following him. Doesn't say. Probably, probably the same way that this one is marked. Yeah. And the other followers and the other followers that come to Christ will be, be, be marked. And we'll look more into Mark when we get there on this section here. Um, but he says, he calls out to the one with the inkhorn. And he says, And the Lord said unto them, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for the abomination that has been done in the midst of you. So he's going to go through this city, through the midst of Jerusalem, which was repeating it, because that's the city they're talking about. So that's a double, double repeat there, which means we want to pay attention. God's trying to draw attention. And it says to place a mark. Now, in Hebrew, this word literally means a tau, which is a cross. It's the last letter of the, of the Hebrew alphabet, and it basically forms a cross or the older cross with a, with a T without the extending top, but it's considered a cross, or an X, and forms an X in its, in its capital, capital format. So God is basically saying that he's going to put a mark upon, their, upon them, and he's literally saying it's a mark or a sign of exemption from judgment, is the, what it literally comes down to meaning. So basically God is coming through and he's just putting a mark. And if you want to think about this as, the, as a cross, there's many places where we see the cross in play, even in the Old Testament. At the Passover, when they slew the, the Passover lamb and took the blood, 
they struck the lintels of the door and the forehead and the, and, the, and the top of the door and blood would be in the bottom of the door so that you ended up with a cross on the, on the door and that was the salvation of the people at that time. They struck the lintels and the top and there would be blood in the basin of the floor so that you ended up with a cross, which is where the Catholics got the idea of crossing themselves with the same mark. Huh? When they marked the door on Passover. Lintel to side, door, door sides. The door jams. Those are lintels too. Lintels are also beans. They were, they were, mar they were marked and it had the sign of the cross from, from that. And then this word talks about the idea of a cross or, or, or an X being used. And we see this over and over again, how God brings that out. Revelation 7.3, which is where I was talking about the, the, mark being, the people being marked. Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of the Lord in their foreheads. And I heard that the number that were sealed and the, they that were sealed were 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Then he goes and names all 12 tribes and, and the 12,000 uh, from each tribe. Which is why these groups that want to say that they're looking to be part of the 12,000 have got to show us why, where their Jewish roots are. <laughs> because it's supposed to be Jews that are, that are marked during that period of time. Revelation 9, 4 says, And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any, any tree, but only those men which, were not, which have not the seal of the God in their foreheads. So we see this whole idea that God marks. We go back to... Genesis when Cain slew Abel and he says, you know, everybody that comes to meet, you know, see me is going to want to kill me. It's the same word. God says, I'm going to put a mark upon you and anyone who kills you will be, will be judged. So whatever in his case, it seems to be some kind of literal mark that they saw. And these seem to be a more of a spiritual side on the mark. All, all people are, are descended from Adam and Eve and, and Noah and his wife. I mean, those are two grandparents we all, great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents uh, that we all have in common. But from that point on, you have a whole splitting up of the, of the world. So not everybody's related to the Jews. But it says you're going to set a mark upon the foreheads of the men. And the men that they're looking at are those that sigh, which literally means to groan in grief or cry lament over the abominations that have been done in the midst of this. Those who are spiritual and are being hurt by what they're seeing from sin. This is something that we need to understand the holiness of God and be in the holiness and righteousness that God has and as he sets in us. How many times do we as Christians really get sad over what we see and, and the destruction of what's going on in this world? And it's sometimes really hard because we see so much the sin that sometimes we tend to get a little hard-hearted toward it. I know that I've gone through periods of that where it's just, it doesn't shock me anymore because I've seen it so much. And yet here it's saying that it really should. It should shock us. We should be moaning, we should be groaning over it and being driven to prayer. And part of our world's process is to expose us so much to sin that we do get that hard-heartedness and that lackadaisical point of view. And our entertainment world has done a good job at doing that. They say that the average person sees hundreds of murders a week if they're watching TV a lot. And that's probably true when you think about all, 
I can turn on the TV and if I'm not careful about what I'm watching, there's murders all over the place. It's our mind and we see so much adultery and fornication and homosexuality that we start to become numb about it and it doesn't become as big a deal. The entertainment industry says they're just reflecting what's going on in society. And if that's true, it's really sad where society's at. I think they're more molding it and maybe not on purpose, and I don't try to put bad, bad thoughts into them, but Satan is behind the scenes on everything that goes on. He is the one moving chess pieces around and coordinating, which is why people who get into conspiracy theories get to see conspiracy, because really there is a conspiracy behind it, but not at the individual person level. The, the one who's moving the pieces and, and running the conspiracy is, is up in the spiritual world, and people are just being moved around by him. Now, does that mean every single one of them are innocent in their, in their move? No, there's also those that are trying to make things happen. But here we see the ones that are marked are those that are being grieved by what they see. And this is something we need to do as Christians, and grieve to the point where we pray for our country, we pray for those that we know that are, are fallen into these sins and these deceptions and the abominations. And this is something that as we walk with God, we're going to be more sensitive to the, the evil around us. And I've shared you with you, and I am becoming very s cynical, I guess is the right word, as I watch TV. I watch these shows that I used to consider good when I was younger or acceptable, and now I'm seeing how really awful they were. And I'm talking about shows from the... 50s, 60s, 70s that were supposed to be the okay shows when people think about them. And I look at them, I'm going, wow, this really isn't all that good a show either. But God touches us and he shows us how much evil there is and how slow the progression was. One thing about Satan, and he's, he's very patient to make things happen. And this happens in our, in our world over and over. Those that are pushing toward evil seem to have this patience as long as they get little incremental destruction they're okay and I think that's the sad thing for us as Christians and and people that want to follow God we tend to want everything to be turned over turned around overnight and we don't celebrate the small victories I think enough and I understand because we're, we're, we're really heartbroken by what we see and how far from righteous it is it's hard to celebrate the incremental uh, righteousness that we might see the world on, on moving downward is just happy. Okay, it's going the right direction. It's a slippery slope. We get this first one done and it'll slide down. Why? Because humans are wanting that anyway. Our sin nature desires to see the sin be built up. But we want to be very careful. God is saying he's going to mark those who are lamenting and sorrowing over the sin, the abominations. And the Lord said, go through the midst, in, in verse 3, and set a mark, and mark those that are, that are sighing, cry for the abomination. And verse 5, and to the others, he said in my hearing, those are the, other, the six others, go after him through the city and smite, yet let not your eyes spare, neither have pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and young children and women, but come not near any man upon whom the mark and begin at my sanctuary. And they began at the ancient men which was before the house of the Lord. 
he told the death, and probably angels of death is what we would call them, go through and slay. And slay young, old, anybody who wasn't marked, anybody who wasn't following after God. This is quite a judgment. God is trying to purify what's going on. And in this statement, begin at my sanctuary. This is something we as Christians always have to keep in mind. We need to get repentance starting at the church and amongst ourselves. We need to start. And the quote verse we keep quoting, you know, if my people who are called by my name shall call upon the Lord. God starts always in his own house. If we as Christians can't lead the way, there's a problem. So he starts at the house of God and says, repent. Repent, turn from the sins. And he's looking to destroy and get rid of all of the sin. And this is something that we see this if you look at church history over and over again. The church tends to swing from extreme legalism and, and, and judging everything really tightly to, to the other side of extreme grace and where anything goes. And this is a very sad part. We very rarely will stay balanced in between. And balance is really hard to maintain anyway because God wants us to be holy. He wants us to be righteous. Yet he has grace. And we want to be able to look at this grace. And grace would never become a license to sin. Paul said this, you know, shall I go out and sin because, because grace, you know, to, so that grace abounds? And he says, God forbid. And we want to be walking this fine line between looking at ourselves and saying, am I being righteous? Am I being holy? Is God working in my life? And allowing grace to come into our life. And we want to walk a very fine line. And I've watched the church. I've looked at church history. And it goes back and forth. It's a pendulum that goes you know, back and forth. And we can think of times in a history where things were really, you know, really harsh. You know, and any sin was judged harshly and critical. And you were not accepted in the church if you committed you know, these sins. To the place where almost no rules go at all. Because grace was, a, grace was so being preached. And it is a place where God says, we are to be righteous, we are to be holy, but he has grace. He's looking for us to be grieved at the sin and moved and motivated to clean out life and clean out the church and make make it a holy place, which is why we teach all of God's rules. We teach against lying, fornication, gossip, uh, adultery, lesbianism, murder, all the, and stealing and pride and all these things. But by the same token, we're going to say, God is going to give you grace. But there is that idea that there should be repentance. There should be a moving against the sin in our, in our midst. We should be growing. We should be growing in our hatred, especially of sin in our own life. And we want to change it. And we have to examine ourselves. If we do not have a problem with sin and, that, and we don't have a problem with sin and, and never do, we might have to look at our life and say, do I know Christ? Because I should be getting to a place where sin bothers me because I am becoming more like God. Now, that should not make me judgmental of others. Okay, we want to be very careful that we start judging others before their sin. Because, number one, we don't know where they are with God. 
If they're not saved, I'll, my goal is to get them saved. I don't want, I don't care whether they're sinning or not, really, because if you've ever tried to witness to somebody, somebody who knows they're a sinner is a whole lot easier to witness to than somebody who thinks they're pretty good. Jesus had more problem with the scribes and Pharisees than anybody else. Because they would look at him and say, you know, well, what's your problem? We keep the gods, we, we keep all the rules. And their self-righteousness kept them from wanting to serve God. And during my times of witnessing, it's been very much that. If somebody thinks that they're a pretty good person, they're very hard to reach because they don't recognize that they're a sinner. Or they don't recognize that their sin is bad enough to, ju to demand judgment. That's why the hardest job when we're witnessing to people is to convince them that they're a sinner. Which is why the way of the master uses the Ten Commandments as a tool for witnessing. Have you ever told a lie? Well, anybody who's honest is going to say, yes, I've told a lie. Well, that makes you a liar. Have you ever stolen anything in your lifetime? You know, no matter how big or small. And yes, well, that makes you a thief. So you've admitted so far to being a lying thief. Gone, and then they usually will go to Jesus saying that Jesus says, if you were angry without a cause, you've committed murder in God's sight. Have you ever been angry without a cause, and then they're going, well, everybody has been angry without good reason. So he goes, well, you just admitted to being a, a lying, a murdering thief. Uh, how do you think you should stand before God? So you get them, but the first step of witnessing to anybody is to convince them that they have sinned. That's a hard concept to get to these people that if you think it in your mind, you've done it. That's why the first two are the best ones, a lying thief, yeah. because everybody... Everybody has broken those ones. You come to the fact that God is a good judge. He's going to judge you for what you have done wrong, not for what you intended to do or the, all the good that you've done. And then you can bring them to the fact that they need Jesus Christ sometimes. It's, it's, a, good, it's a good process. It works for a lot of people. It doesn't work for everybody. So actually we get to the point where we, where we, um, we take advantage of God's a lot of people do take advantage of God's grace. Because we're covered by grace, a lot of people go out and sin just because he's going to forgive me. And that's a dangerous mindset to have, especially as a Christian. Because that's really presuming upon his grace, and that's not a good place to be. Yes, if I sin, God is going to forgive me. And he's going to give me grace. He's going to give me grace and take me to heaven if I'm one of his children. He will forgive me if I confess my sins. He will forgive and we will be back into fellowship. But to have that mindset of God's just going to forgive me and I can do whatever I want, that has a very dangerous place. Am I really saved if I can think that way? Because if I sin, I should be under the conviction that I have done wrong. And be, that conviction should drive me to repent and ask forgiveness and, and try not to do it in the future. But if I go and I'm just saying, well, God's going to forgive me, I can go do whatever I want. And believe me, I have met people who think that way. I think we've all probably met people that think that way. At that point, I'm going to have to say, do you really know God? If you can, if you can sin without having facing conviction and everything, then you have a problem between you and God. And I can't judge that. I mean, I'm not going to be their judge, but it's to me that's saying a really, you know, they have an interesting relationship with God if they are in a relationship with him. Well, when, what ends up happening is that people get familiar with God to a degree, and just feel they can go out and sin. But the other side of this is the church is maybe not talking about holiness and righteousness as, as well as it should. 
because there should be that conviction. If I, got, if I have God in my heart and I can sin without, then he's going to convict me because I'm his child and he's going to punish. So it's very important as we look at this, God is righteous. He is holy. If he is living in us, he is going to make us righteous and holy just because he's living and coming out of us. And it'll be slow. For, for many people, it's very slow. But he does want to change us into, an image, into his image, which is why he makes us a new creation, to change our heart. As in Jeremiah says, he takes the heart of stone that's hard and, and calloused and puts a heart of flesh in there that's soft and tender and hears the conviction of God. Verse 8, And it came to pass that while they were slain I was, and I was left, I fell upon my face and cried and said, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the residue of the people of Israel in the pouring out of your wrath upon Jerusalem? This is the picture of what we're supposed to do as Christians. We, we bow down and we go, God, is your wrath going to be so strong that everybody dies? This is him interceding. He go, you know, he's, he's falling down and he says, God, are you going to de- destroy the entire house of Israel? Residual, remnant, the same word as remnant. Are you going to kill everybody in Israel? Or are you going to leave some? And he already knows they're going to be leave some because some have been marked. So this is kind of an interesting story, but this is the same picture we see of Moses. When Moses, when God goes, tells Moses, I'm going to destroy everybody and start all over with you, and Moses bows down and goes into, you know, God, you know, if you're going to destroy all these people, you're, you're going to destroy your reputation, go ahead and kill me as well, because I cannot have your reputation destroyed and, and start all over. This should be our motivating factor when we see things going wrong, that we bow down in prayer. We lift it up before God. When we see sin abounding and we go before God and, and we see the judgment upon that sin and we go, God, help have mercy. Don't destroy everybody. Don't destroy all the things. And we know even in Revelation, when God moves very harshly against this world, there's a remnant that's going to be left. There's a small amount of people that are going to make it through the, rev- through the, the whole tribulation period and enter into the millennial kingdom. I don't know off the top of my head. It's, one of the, it's probably about 100,000, 200,000, I would guess, because that's the time, that's the time frame of a large city. The court of the temple. The court of the temple. Several hundred to a thousand would fill the court. You know, several thousand would kill, fill the court anyway. But yeah. He says fill it. He says fill it. So yes, there's going to be a large number of people that are going to be dead in there and in the city. Which is why I kind of I'm looking again at Revelation because if you look at the math on the on, in Revelation, some 66 to 70 percent of the population of the world will be destroyed, just from the numbers we are given. And you figure we're at what 4.5 trillion people or something, That's only in the walls. huh? That's only in the walls. 
<laughs> so, you know, the largest percentage of the population will be destroyed. So there'll be approximately, you know, 12 million people, you know, 120 million. Is it that large now? It's been a while since I've checked. <laughs> if it's six billion, if it's six trillion, then there'd be, you know, about 180 million left. That's quite a bit of destruction. That's quite a bit of destruction that's going to happen during this period. And this is that idea. God moves against the unrighteousness that's out there and destroys. And it's hard for us to picture that, but that's because for us especially, usually when we think about God in our day and age, we think about the loving God that, you know, and, and almost when we, people will say that, they kind of go to the point where this is a God that doesn't even look at evil and doesn't even judge evil. And this is not the God that we worship. Yes, he's a God of love. But he shows us that love because he sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins so that he could then accept us in righteousness because of the sacrifice of Jesus. But he is still a righteous, holy God that cannot look upon evil and will not abide evil. And he will judge that evil. A lot of that, though, is because they don't understand love in the first place. Their kind of love is, well, he'll just put up with anything. Yeah. And if we loved our children the way that they want, they want to have God love, then we'd just let our kids play in the road and eat poison and, and do whatever they, whatever they feel like doing and say we love our kids. And that really is not loving our kids. If we're not going to let them do anything, then we're really not loving our kids. Our love is revealed in the fact that we put rules on them to protect them. And God's love does the same thing. His love puts rules on that says, I want to protect you because I don't want you to end up being hurt. But the world doesn't look at love that way in general, which is why they have trouble learning and how to love one another. Many marriages are based upon a love that is flowery, romantic love that has no real love involved in it. Then they wonder why they can't get along with each other over the long haul. Verse 9, and he said unto me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of blood, and the city full of perverseness. For they say, The Lord hath forsaken the earth, and the Lord sees not. So we look at this, and it says, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. In Hebrew, that word exceedingly is there twice, so it's exceedingly, exceedingly great. He is emphasizing this to the point of it is just so great that he can't look at it anymore. And this is going to be as things go. And then it says the land is full of blood or literally death. What we saw in this, and again, we brought this out. He says, you know, remember in the last chapter, he said, Ezekiel, see the abominations that are going on. See the defilement that's going on, the evil that's going on. God gets to the point where he says, I've had enough. Before the flood, it says that every imagination of man was evil. And we're not too far from that point in our day and age. Yes, we've got the Christians who are following God for the most part. But, you know, have you talked to anybody who just, to many of the people out there, and every thought of them is just evil? What can I get away with? What can I do? What can't I do? And it seems to be getting worse and worse with each generation. But he says the land is full of blood full of death, through destruction. 
And it says the city is full of perverseness. And this word literally means warped and perverted. And we know what those things are. He's talking about idols and sexual perversions and all these people with the wrong mindset. And again, we're seeing all of that going on in our world. People have set up idols, things that are more important to the, than, than God. And we've talked about this. And we don't usually make stone and wood idols and, and gold idols in, in our day and age. But many people have idols. They have work is placed before God. Their money is placed before God. They're made for some people, even the family is placed before God. All these different things we have and say, is God number one or is something else number one? And that doesn't mean that you have to not work. We all need to work. But I know what it means to set the fam- to work before, before God because I did that in my younger days. I, I have workaholic tendencies and I did put work before God and my family. Ended up walking away from the church for a while because I was just so busy working. Not, not out of purpose of anything. I just kind of got so busy working 60, 80 hours a week that I kind of ignored everything else in life. Period of time I, in my life, I had a idol above God. And it's easy to do. Very easy to do. And we're seeing our, wor- our world getting more and more perverse as far as God's standards go. I look at it and I wonder how much further is it going to go before God says it's time to judge this world. I hate to see how much further it's got to go. If, it's, if this isn't the, this close to the end, I'd hate to see how far it's going to get. And it scares me how far it's going to get if this isn't bad enough yet. But again, I think this is a vision not just of Jerusalem. I think this is really the vision of the end days when God moves from Jerusalem outward. It sounds more like a vision than anything else because I've said the beginning sounds more like angelic forces moving. And remember, Ezekiel is a post-exile prophet. He is prophesying from Babylon. There isn't even a temple for him to be talking about when he's prophesying. So this is why almost any time he's talking about the temple, he's talking something future because there's no temple for him to be. He's in Babylon and the temple has been destroyed at this point in time. This is one of the reasons he's either seeing into the past and seeing what God did or he's seeing into the future when the next temple comes along which will be the tribulation period. And then it says in verse 9, the people say the Lord has forsaken the earth, the Lord sees not. And as for me also, mine eyes shall not spare, neither will I have pity, and I will recompense their way upon them. So the accusation of the people is there's, there is no God, he doesn't care, he's not here. And does that sound a little familiar to what you might hear from individuals? Ah, there's no God. He's not seeing. He doesn't care. If there is a God, he started everything and left. This is the stuff we're hearing in our day and age. <laughs> if there is a God, then he doesn't, doesn't have any control. He doesn't care. He's not seeing. He's not going to judge. And this is something we see so often. And unfortunately, sometimes Christians get into this attitude. And we see this in the psalm where the psalmist kept going. Why, God, are you taking so long? You know, you say you're seeing this, but you're, you're, not, you're not doing anything. You know, have, you, have, your, have your hand gotten weak or whatever? A lot of times Christians end up with the same way. Well, it's no big deal. There's, God's not judging. And this gets into this idea of the servants that are not serving correctly. They're lax. They're not keeping their eyes open because of the long delay of the master. They're, they're just going, well, it, everything keeps going on the way it's always gone on. There is going to be that time when God stops it. He's going to stop and judge this world. 
and sin will receive its re final reward. And this is something that the world goes, well, no, nobody's ever getting punished. You know, we get away with it. And this is something that we see. They keep sinning because it seems like they're getting away with it. And they sin and sin and sin and they don't get judged. And usually God is trying to get enough sin in their life so that they're convicted. Everybody who has ever lived will know that they're a sinner and deserve the punishment they're getting when they stand before God. He's, he's already made that very clear that they will all know. The heavens declare God. The declare, we have the conscience in us that declares God's right and wrong. Even if we don't know anything about the Bible, people know that they have sinned and done wrong. That brings up another question. Until you know the Holy Spirit convicts us, even the non-believers, is that right? But then you think, well, what we were talking about there, uh, be convicted and know that a thought in their mind could be sin. They will know that they have sinned. Now, can you harden your conscience to the point where you start ignoring it? Yes, we see that all the time with people getting get so hard in their heart that they ignore their conscience. They've blacked it out, they've hardened it, they put a callus over it, they've poured concrete on over it, whatever, whatever state. But there was a point in time when you knew that what you were doing was wrong. This happens every time when somebody gets into a sinful lifestyle. The first time they go out to steal from somebody, they know it's wrong. They may do it long enough, often enough, that, they no long, that they've justified it and no longer think of it as being wrong. But they knew at one point that it was wrong. Lying to people they know is wrong. Being abusive to people they know is wrong. Now, you can get to the place where you harden your heart, but you still have that point in your life where you knew at one point in time that it was wrong they will know at that point in time that they have sinned and, at some, at the, and that they needed God to help them correct it. Now, how that all works, that's between God and, and his judgment. Some people, and it's kind of interesting when you talk to people, when people finally respond to God, you see that, that recognition of their sin and the need for God. And they recognize it and they come to him. But, you know, here God says they say that he's forsaken, he doesn't see. And we probably all know people have come to that place where they're saying, you know, God, God doesn't care, he doesn't see. Okay, verse 10 and 11, we're going to tie up. And as for me also, my eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity, and I will recompense their way upon their head. God says, I'm going to give them what they deserve. Recompense their wages. They've earned it, they get it. And ultimately, the lost world will be paid the wages that they have earned. If they reject Jesus Christ, they will be sent to hell. They will receive their their final payment. And even in this world, people really are not happy or not, not generally following God. When they don't have God in their life, there's an emptiness. And we've talked about this before. We look at some of these people that are rich and famous and seem to have everything in going their way. And we look at them and say, well, if I had everything they did, I'd be really, really happy. And they're not really happy in most cases. They're alcoholics, they're drunks, they commit suicide. And they, they seem to have everything in the world, but they don't have God. And they have that conviction in their heart that is just emptiness. Can you say that this whole thing that Ezekiel had was for the readers later on to have a vision of the end times? I think it's partly that. And I think it's partly, partially everyday life as you're going on. This is not just in time. God is bringing in judgment in the spiritual realm anyway at all times. Because he's always trying to convict people of their sins so that they will come to him. 
Primarily, yes, I think it's in time when, when all these people are going to be die, dying and, and the, the, peop, the righteous are marked, those who are, are burdened for the, for the right are marked and not, and not touched. But we're going to see in all of this, it's all the idea of, am I following God? And God moving against them. And then verse 11 says, <coughs> the one with the inkhorn said, I have done it all. It is complete. And again, I picture that being Jesus. And he says, okay, everybody's marked. It's time for you to move. Go ahead, go ahead and make, your, make the move. So yes, there's a, there's a bit of it. Most of it, I think, is, is apocalyptic in the, in the revelation. But I think also it has this picture of God moving in our day-to-day life. Almost all pr- prophecy has a dual meaning. It has some long-term f- fulfillment, and it has an immediate fulfillment. And God does this all through the scriptures, especially in the Jewish mind. This is what they expected, that any prophecy had a real upfront answer to it, but the ultimate was sometime in the future. And they had no problem with that in their mentality. We, with our Greek mentality, we usually think of, well, it's either done or it's not done. And we don't have this ebb and flow part of it we see this, so I say, yes, both, both are true. It's, it's definitely future, even to us, but it has impact on a day-to-day basis uh, for us. If you look at it, you see a partial completion of it, but not the prophetic uh, completion of it. So it's not uncommon. Because otherwise, we look at everything and we say, well, well, that's great, you know, I'll worry about it years from now when it comes true. And there's things always that are applicable in the scriptures to us today. There's this aspect of He's showing us, you know, be convicted, be, be sorrowful, be, be walking in as the marked individual and be protected. And you know, that protection doesn't necessarily mean no death to the mark, marked individuals, but that they are protected from the worst of things that are happening to the world. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask that you guide and lead us as we go forward. Give us opportunities to share you with others and to, and Lord, just help us to grow in our walk with you, that we become more like you in all that we do. In your son's name, amen.